Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come, come in and know that you are welcome. To Tales to Terrify, to the Nook, to our lives, to Celia's, Mahler's, the Ink Black Cat of the Nook, Tabitha's, and mine. And welcome to next year. Come, come in. It hovers near zero out there, and it's much, much cozier in here. There. That's better. Tonight is the end of our second and... We may as well say it is the beginning of our third year. So, welcome all to our anniversary, and in particular, welcome Eric Gustafsson. If you're still with us, I'll explain in a moment, Eric. I hope you all brought a friend or two tonight, because our tale tonight, well, it's frightening. It won somehow... Well, you'll see... See, it's it's a little end-of-the-world story with—well, you'll see. Are you settled? Good. We have a few items of interest before we go off into this good night. First, thank you, all of you who contributed to the Kickstarter campaign for David Bradshaw's second CD, Songs from the Former County— we hit the stretch goal of 1750 bucks Canadian just in time. New Year's Eve. So, David will do a special song for both the Starship Sofa and for Tales to Terrify. Thank you, David. And again, thanks, everyone, and Robin, for letting us be part of this effort. I look forward to it. 
second, as mentioned last week, we are about to lose our co-editor and my partner in the horrific Miss Cher Eves. I don't think it's anything I've done. I know it's nothing you've done. We've been lucky to have her this long, and now it's just time for her to break free and go elsewhere. She is a lawyer, after all. She has better things to do. And she will be missed. And being missed, well, that makes her a rare lawyer indeed. Oh, I'm sorry. Apologies. One does have to make at least one lawyer joke when lawyers are present. I put forth the word last week on last week's show, and we have heard back. I did tell Tony and Cher, however, that I would lay chum in our wake for at least three weeks before we make any final choices. So, if you're interested in co-editing this little dark effort, here are a few of the elements of the job as Cher has defined them. First, maintain the Tales to Terrify spreadsheet. That is the quiet heart of the operation. It has separate sections for stories that have just come in, stories that have been assigned to readers, stories that have been recorded, stories that have been cast. The co-editor assigns the new stories to narrators and puts the completed narrations into our Dropbox. We usually consult on this business. The co-editor, Cher, in this case, reads submitted stories, finds the good ones, we discuss them, Cher and I, and she politely declines the ones we can't use for whatever reason, and keeps authors whose stories have been accepted apprised of when they might expect to hear their tales on the show. The co-editor also gets and maintains biographies for authors and narrators, keeps them up to date. And so you know, Cher says she will be happy to help her replacement get up to speed. The spreadsheet, by the way, is a Google Doc dot something. She says it's a little unwieldy, but not bad once you get the hang of it. I'll take her word for it. Every time I touch it, I ruin something. But I think normal people can handle it. To give you some idea of the time commitment involved, Cher says that when she's not behind, the work takes about a day each week. She also says there is some catching up to do right now. So, if you are interested, let us know at talestoterrify at gmail.com. Put co-editor in the subject line of the message. Now... Eric Gustafsson. Several weeks ago, I asked for recommendations about what we might do to mark our 100th end or our 104th show, our second anniversary show here in the Nook. And Eric was kind enough to offer the suggestion that we do a listener appreciation show. Let 15 or 20 listeners each put up a short piece of flash fiction. Well, this was not a bad idea, not a bad idea at all, at least. I might have sent Eric a note thanking him for the suggestion and acknowledging his participation in what I've always tried to encourage, a Tales to Terrify community. But I did not. Excuses? 
Yeah, sure. I found out we were going to lose share at about that time. My computer began having the first evidence of the failing sectors that a few weeks later led to a hard drive crash. I also started coming down with a kind of wretched flu, the which has still hung on. You may still hear it in me. Still, I could have, should have written to Eric, thanked him. As it worked out, we did no special events, either for show 100 or for tonight's anniversary, other than to do what we try to do every week, which is offer good listening to fans of the dark and the creepy. So, thank you, Eric. The idea has promise, and we may do something very like that during the coming year. I will say that such an effort takes a bit of coordination and planning, so maybe I should start very soon. Hmm? And now, on to the show. We have a special edition of Sylvia Schultz's Lights Out segment tonight, special because, well... Sylvia's efforts are always special. This is doubly special tonight because she put this segment together on New Year's Eve, the which is also Rob and her wedding anniversary. Thank you, Rob, for sharing Sylvia with us on your anniversary. And all the best for both of you for the coming year. Here is Sylvia Schultz with Lights Out. Everybody. Hello, this is Sylvia Schultz, your host for Lights Out. I hope you've been well since the last time we chatted. And who knows, maybe you've even had a ghostly encounter or two since then. If you have stories to share, feel free to look me up on Facebook at either one of my two ghost sites, Fractured Spirits or Ghosts of the Illinois River. I'm always up for a good ghost story, so don't be shy about sending me a message on either one of those pages. Speaking of good ghost stories, a good friend of mine is a gold mine of them. Not only is he a very talented horror writer, he's also sensitive. You've met him on Lights Out before. David is the medium who gave a ride to George, the ghost he picked up outside the Pollock Hospital in Bartonville. David really knows how to tell a good story, and they mostly come from his own experiences as a paranormal investigator. He's one of the founders of Paranormal Seekers, a group I've had the pleasure of investigating with a couple of times. I sat down with David one sunny afternoon in search of some chilling tales. I got what I was after. Settle in with me to hear David Youngquist, author, sensitive, and paranormal investigator, tell about just a few of the many experiences he's had with the supernatural. It's time to go. Lights out. When you're sensitive, you can see spirits, sense spirits, talk to spirits that people around you aren't aware of. They might attribute it to... They might attribute different things to, you know, just luck or something falls off the table and they say, oh, well, if you feel a bug in your hair, you feel a bug in your hair, you think, you know, something pull your hair, it's a bug. You know, but there's a weirdly thin line between our realm and the next realm. 
Um, now, how do you? You're sensitive. How do you usually experience the spirits? It depend. A. It depends on how amped up I am. Okay. And B. It depends on how they want to reveal themselves to me. I see. Um, just because I'm talking to someone who's 12 doesn't mean that they were 12 when they died. It no. may be that they are comfortable at that stage of their life and they enjoyed their life at that time. Um, there's a little girl that habitually comes and talks to me that's attached to a house in Tiskawa. She's probably, at the oldest, she's probably eight or nine. She didn't really tell me how old she is, but she's a little girl from the 1800s, Victorian era. Um, got the full-length dress and the pinafores, and she's a very cute girl. And um, she she comes and talks to me on a regular basis when I walk by the house, because it's empty. The house that she inhabits is empty. Um, and I walk my dog past her house on a regular basis. There's three spirits that live in that house. Um, there's her, there's Celeste, and who's an older woman. And then there's a gentleman by the name of John, and he's usually out in the outbuilding because he was the handyman of the place. But her name was Annie, and I got her last name. I can't recall it. But she always revealed herself to me as a little girl. Well, I found her tombstone in the Mount Hope Cemetery, which is the Tisquaw Cemetery. Okay. And I found her tombstone, and she died when she was like 82. Oh, okay. So it, it, how they want to reveal themselves and how they look necess- may not necessarily be what they look like when they died. Okay. So that that's one thing that, that people have a misperception. Oh, I saw a, a, a ghost kid. Well, maybe, maybe that's how they want to reveal themselves you maybe they liked it when they were 12 and playing and had no responsibilities that is really yeah. interesting i've never heard that i've never realized yeah that. and i didn't i didn't really start realizing that myself until i started a working with other sensitives and b doing some research on the hauntings where i what i was looking into okay and realizing that if you died when you were 80 why do you look like you're, you're 10 you know and, that and is then fascinating. talking to other sensitives i i came to understand that so I kind of came into it at a late time to admitting it and to dealing with it. So I'm kept making up for lost time and dealing with, you know, working with people. Um, so so the, the ghosts can reveal themselves differently. They look differently um, as they want to. That is how I perceive them. If you're talking about how I pick up on them, when I'm really amped up and I'm on an investigation or I'm somewhere where I'm actually consciously doing an investigation, it's kind of like the old-fashioned car or truck radios where you, instead of having digital push buttons, you actually turn the dial and move the little the little bar and you got static and then the voice would get clear and you get more static until you tuned in where the station was. Okay. And it's kind of like setting wavelength, setting frequencies. It's tuning in on on them okay when i'm doing an investigation if i'm acting as a sensitive and doing an investigation i can tune in on them how i sense they're there it's weird it's just like a sensing a presence okay. you know just sensing something there and, and it's it's nothing that i consciously do it's not something that i consciously walk around with my radar up you know i'm not the long island medium i don't do that this is the midwest you don't do that in the midwest <laughs> you'll end up somewhere full of dope in a, in a straight jacket. Right. <laughs> so in Midwest, you don't do that kind of thing. Um, but it, it's just... Motorcycles. It's it's just a way of picking up on them. It's just something that I've always been able to do. I've never known a time when I couldn't do it. Okay. So it, it's kind of like breathing, I guess, in a weird way. It's just something you accept 
I wouldn't know how to describe it not being able to do it. Okay. And, and which doesn't make sense to somebody that has, can't do it. Mm-hmm. You know. So, but that's how that goes. So, that that's kind of how I perceive it. How I pick them up. Okay. One one thing that I have found is that spirits will seek out people that can see them. I've heard that. Yeah. I mean, I've actually had um, someone fi- find me from like the Quad Cities area. Wow. In Tisquah, where I live, which is a 60-mile difference. <laughs> so I drew somebody in from 60 miles, and she insisted that I get a hold of her husband and tell him that he that he's been ignoring the symptoms too long, go to the doctor, he has cancer, and it's going to kill him if he doesn't get it treated. And I'm like, I don't know who your husband is. And she's like, and, and it turns out it's a someone who's known in the writing world. Oh, and I'm not going to say the name because I don't know whatever happened beyond that. Right. And I said, ma'am, I said, if I call him out of the clear blue sky and say your wife tells me told, tells me to go to the doctor, tells you to go to the doctor and get checked up, he's going to hang up on me and think I'm nuts. Yeah. You know, so I, you have to kind of... Balance their wishes as to what's exactly, possible. Exactly, as to what's reasonable and possible. Yeah. And she was kind of upset about him and it's like I'm not going to call him mm. you know granted I could probably find out through channels how to get a hold of him yeah but I'm not going because if I go through channels to find him and then tell him this I will be arrested I'm sure <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know so I, I, I tried to have tried to explain that to her and I it is what it is I guess you know so but yeah that's that's how that kind of goes but yeah we we're picked up on very much in by spirits so All right. Cool. Yeah. So tell me about the Cambodian. The Cambodian was situation. It was a weird situation. The the way I picked up on this particular spirit, she was <clears throat> she was what is known as a vengeance demon um, in in Asian myths and legends, and actually a lot to that. So a human spirit can be turned into a vengeance demon. Yes. Oh, wow. But there is. But according to see, and I don't know a whole lot about Asian. Asian philosophies and beliefs. Um, I talked to a friend of mine whose husband is from from Vietnam, mm. and he explained to me the process that if if you die, usually it's you usually die a violent death, and you usually are not settled when you cross over. And if you are angry enough and hateful enough and vengeful enough, there is a process you can go to to through to gain these powers, gain these abilities, and gain this. But you have to be the biggest badass in the world to do this, to even start to do this. And by the time you are done doing this, you're an even bigger badass. Wow. And so I explained to Larry what was going on. And I've known Larry since I was five. <laughs> and he, he and this was through, all through email. He works, in, he works in Asia and lives now in Southeast Asia. And he wrote me back. He said... He said, Dave, if my husband wasn't of the similar mindset of you in your abilities, I'd call you crazy. He said, but let me check with Vince. Uh-huh. And so he checked with his husband, and Vince explained then to me how this process worked okay. and, and what happened. And, and what, in finding this person and finding this spirit, it found me. Um, and the reason it found me is because it did not like me. She did not like me. Um, because I could sense her. Um, she was attached to a young man named Ty, 
whose family had escaped the purges of Paul Pot. And mo- some of his family, not all of his family, some of his family had escaped, escaped from Paul Pot. Came here in the 70s as refugees. And this, and we got to talking about this at a meeting of the investigative group that we are part of. Kelly, and, Kelly Mahar and I, Kelly Keck, um, and all the rest of the group were there, and Ty was part of the group. And he was telling us about these experiences he was having, and his boyfriend said, you know, nudged him and said, tell these two. And, and it came out that this thing had been following him. He didn't know what it was. And it, he actually had ended up with a broken arm at one time because it knocked him downstairs. Oh, jeez. He had scratches. He'd get scratches on his face. He'd get burns. He'd get, he got dragged out of bed one night when his boyfriend was there. Oh, man. By nothing. Um, and I said, does it happen all the time? He's like, no, it doesn't happen all the time. He said, it, it seems to make its rounds between myself, my grandmother, my brother, and my sister were the ones that made it from Cambodia. And as Kelly and I are sitting here, Kelly and I amp each other up. Whatever it is, we magnify one another. And Kelly and I were sitting here going, okay, does this happen? He's like, yes. Does this happen? Yes. Has this ever happened? Yes. You know, did you come from this part of, of Cambodia? Yes. You know, so we're answering all these questions. It's kind of freaking the kid out. <laughs> and, and we're like, no, no, no. It, we're just picking up on this. And the thing... The thing was there with him that night. It, it, you know, he had said, you know, my grandmother was buying bother with it last two weeks ago, and now it seems to be back with me. So it, it had followed him. Well, when this thing realized that Kelly and I could see it, for whatever reason, it didn't attach to her. It followed me, uh. and it followed me home. And I really freaking hate that. You know, because my house has got enough activity as it is. I don't need any more. And this thing was was nasty, and it would keep it would keep showing up in my head. It would, you know, it was trying to get into my head. It would show up and give me these really vile images. And finally, I got tired of it. And I was in Princeton. I was in Princeton one day near the cemetery, and I'm like, okay, I gotta get rid of this damn thing. And it's like. And it's in uh, cemeteries are hallowed ground, um, which is why in the legends and stuff that you know vampires can be buried in cemeteries because hallowed ground, blah blah blah, whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm driving past the cemetery for whatever reason. I'm like, oh, and this thing showed up in the cab of my truck. I'm like, all right, I'm sick of this crap. And she was she was you know trash talking me basically. You know what are you gonna do about it? What are you gonna do about it? And I reached over and went, and I grabbed her. You know because I could see, and I and I just kind of focused my energy. I reached over and grabbed her. I said, I'll show you what I'm gonna do. And I grabbed her so she couldn't get away. Mm-hmm. And I whipped over into the cemetery. And I'm driving around. I'm like, okay, now I got this damn thing. Now what am I gonna do? With it? You know, it's kind of like holding a rattlesnake by the tail. It's like, what are you gonna do with it? Yeah. I'm like, okay. So I'm driving. I'm driving. I'm like, and I remembered because I I wandered around the cemetery a few times when I was going through my divorce drunk and woke up under a really interesting um, yeah, tombstone uh, years ago. Uh, so I kind of knew the cemetery. And in the back of the cemetery there is a mausoleum dug in the side of a hill. And it's sealed. And it's got iron bar doors. And it's been padlocked shut. And the padlock is so old it's rusted. I don't know who's in it. I can't remember the name. I don't know if anybody's in it at all. So I drive down. <clears throat> I drive to the back of the cemetery. I find the mausoleum. I put the truck into gear, put it into park, and I said, you're coming with me. And I dragged her out, and I slammed her into this mausoleum. She's kicking and screaming the whole way. And I grabbed the chain off of my neck. I had a silver chain with a silver cross on it, an Irish cross. I grabbed it off my neck, and I looped it around the bars, and I 
sealed it. And I sealed her in. And I sealed her in that mausoleum. I'm like, great. Now what the hell am I going to do with her? Mm. I can't leave this thing here. So <clears throat> the only thing I could ever see of this this vengeance demon was one eye. And she had her head wrapped in a red scarf and a brown uniform. And I couldn't figure it out. So I started poking around through my history. And having been a history teacher, I was kind of familiar with the Pol Pot regime and what was going on and the way that the communist uh, soldiers would dress and that type of thing. And, and when the when the higher-up ranks of the communist soldiers would graduate from their indoctrination, basically, they would be awarded with a, uh, a red bandana, a red neckerchief um, with you know, whatever decoration on it. But it was always a red bandana representing the Communist Party and other inscriptions on this. And that was what I was, was seeing wrapped around her head and her face. And uh, <clears throat> so I had her sealed in this mausoleum. I'm like, now what am I going to do with her? So I talked to another friend of mine who's also a sensitive in California, and she could pick up on her too. She could basically use me as a transmitter. And we could, she could pick up on the vengeance demon through me and so she kind of said okay you're gonna have to talk to her try and calm her down try and get her to focus try and get her back to kind of her human state of thinking and of feeling and of expressing and i'm like how am i gonna do that and she's like you're gonna have to work with it okay fine so you know i could sense her sealed in this mausoleum when i was at work wherever i was i could it was like it was like this constant static. She was really pissed. It was very pissed and very powerful. And I didn't want to let her loose. Yeah. Because, you know, she was already pissed at me. And I right, didn't want her yeah. to go back to tea because she was already pissed at him. Mm-hmm. So, and I can't remember how to pronounce his name. It's T-E-I. And I can't remember if it's, or T-H-E-I. I can't remember if it's Ty or T. Okay. Forgive me if I mix up his name. Okay. No <laughs> but I didn't want to turn her loose and her go back to his family and start and just take it out on him yeah. what am I going to do with it so finally after about a week's period of time a week's period of time I would you know I'd stop by the cemetery after work this is like February colder than hell in Illinois middle of February and so I'm like what am I going to do with her so over a week's period of time I'd stop back and forth on my way home from work and try and get her to calm down and rationalize and start thinking like a person again and I would leave her, like, I left her a cupcake one day, and it disappeared. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. And I came back the next day, and it was gone. Mm-hmm. That way. I left an apple one day, came back the next day, it was gone. So it's like, okay, the wildlife's getting it, or something's going on. And Jackie, who I talked to, was helping me with this, said, no, she said, if they're strong enough, they can absorb that. I'm like, okay. Wow. No, I'm not letting this thing loose. <laughs> so finally, about halfway through the week, I'm like, okay, why are you so mad at this kid and his family? And, you know, she was projecting herself what she looked like to me. And she said, because they did this to me. I'm like, what? And she reaches up and she pulls this bandana off and drops it to the floor or, and pulls it down. And half of her face was basically gone. And it was, it was a, just a giant cavity. And I said, okay, how did they do that to you? She said, I was a political officer that was in charge of cleansing their village. And they escaped. And my superiors found out. And they marched me out to the same rice paddy and had me executed. 
and basically what they had done was they put an AK-47 at the back of her head and pulled the trigger and kicked her body into the rice paddy and mm. that was it. Yeah. I said, okay, that explains it. <laughs> yeah. So over the next few days, again, I would go visit her. We would talk. And finally it got towards the last end of it that she she wanted to move on. And I had never helped the spirit over the other side before. I never did that. So I, I talked to uh, Kelly and Jackie both, and they told me how to do it. And so finally the last day, it was probably four or five days after I'd, you know, it was five or six days after I'd done this, got her stuck in there. I explained, I told her, I said, do you want to move on? And she's like, yes. She said, I really want to leave. I'm, t- I'm tired. I'm just, I'm just so tired. I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. And I said, if you look up... There's a big, bright object in the sky. Looks like the moon. And like I said, dimensionally, things don't operate the same on different on the same dimensions. I said that's where you need to go. Lift up your hands, lift up your arms, and go towards that. And she did. And as she went, and she as she passed through the light, the bandana fell off, her uniform fell off, her boots fell off, everything fell off, and landed in a pile in the in the mausoleum in the crypt. You know, and I, I, I saw this whole thing happen. Now, okay, people think I'm nuts, but yeah, I saw the whole thing happen. And she was gone. Uh. And it's like, okay, but the, what was strange was that everything was still there. I could still sense everything still there. And I asked Jackie about it, and she said, well, it's kind of her leaving her past behind. And I'm like, that makes sense then. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was interesting. And then she did revisit. She did come back and visit me couple weeks after that she just showed up out of the clear blue sky her name was her name was um um ming na and when i asked larry about that he said that's not a cambodian name he said it's chinese i'm like well think about it i said where did a lot of your political advisors come from I said oh china okay you know yeah. so it was uh, her name was chinese she was from china but she had gone in in i said uh, you know are you be- are you all right she's like yes i'm better she said i'm not as tired I said, well, how's thing? You know, what's going on? She said, well, I did some bad things in my life, and I'm, I have to uh, recompense for them. She said, I'm doing a circuit, but I wanted to thank you for helping me to find peace mm-hmm. and to move on. And then she told me a few things down the road. That and was probably part of her atonement was t- saying thank you to you. Yeah, more than likely. Yeah. More, and that's kind of the gist I got of it. Okay. And so I haven't seen her since. She, okay. You know, she said her piece and thanked me and went on her way. I haven't seen her since. Okay. So that was an interesting one. Yeah. That was that was, that was was one of the more rewarding ones. I've had a couple others that were really cool in that respect. Yeah. But that was that's one of the ones that stand out. And the last day after she was gone, I went and got my cross off of the uh, the bars. And like I said, this was a silver chain, silver cross. And the chain itself was all black and corroded and, and sticky. And not sticky, but just rusty. And I'm like, wow, okay, it's only been sitting out here for five days. And, you know, But that was the, the energy that she had trying to get out and get past the objects. You know, so, yeah. Love that story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you like it. Yes, yes, I do. Yeah. Can you tell us about Boutreau? Boutreau. Yeah. His name is Bernard Boutreau. He finally did tell me his first name. Ah. Uh, Bernard is... Hmm. 
How do I explain Boutreau? He's a unique individual. He has got an amazing sense of humor. He is the jolliest... At, at one time, he's the jolliest Frenchman you ever wanted to meet, and he is 100% total pure Frenchman. And he is also a very serious, very dedicated tracker. Um, his job on his side of the realm is to track lost spirits and to help them cross over. Um, he is he was a voyager when he was alive. He was Catholic, uh, raised by Jesuits, and came here to the U.S. during the time that it was a new country. I mean, open wilderness. Mm. Married a woman who was Potawatomi, which is why I stumbled across him. Um, he, his home village was where my hometown is right now. And so that's one of the ways we crossed paths. But his job on the other side is to help lost spirits find the way to cross over. Um, he found me. He's got this amazing sense of humor. He loves women. He's 100% Frenchman. He's followed me over to the slipper a couple of times. <laughs> and then I can't get him to shut up. So it's very distracting. Um, but he was totally amazed the first time he followed me in there. <laughs> you wouldn't think ghosts would have any interest in going into a strip club, but... It caught him completely off guard. And <laughs> he didn't know what it was. He asked me, you know, what are we going in here? I don't want to get beer. I walk in and there's a naked girl behind the counter serving beer. And, he's, and it just left him gobsmacked for a minute and then I couldn't get him to shut up <laughs> so yeah he is total friend he also refer, refers not only to you but Kelly Mahar as my paramours <laughs> and I'm like no <laughs> yeah, yeah and he gives me a hard time about it all the time but he he and I for whatever reason people don't realize that they have spirits that watch over them and there's a difference between ghosts and spirits okay and not many people know the different spirits are people who have died, passed away, crossed over to the side, and either done their atonement or have been found to be clean enough, pure enough, however you want to word it, good enough, that there is no real issue with them and they're allowed to cross back over and and come to communicate with people. Like I said, it's... It, I always kind of picture it like our reality, then a very narrow alley, which is kind of what the Catholics would call purgatory, and then fully on to the other side. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I've always envisioned it. Um, the ghosts are people who have died and haven't gotten beyond that alley. They've either got stuff here or they're too attached on this side to either family, friends, whatever, or they're afraid to cross over because they know they've lived a shitty life or a bad life. Yeah and they're afraid to go on and face the judgment, or they've died violently somehow or another, and they don't know they're gone. Okay. You know, people in... That's one of the reasons why battlefields are so haunted. Death is very violent, very sudden, very immediate on a battlefield. And if you... If you're lucky. If you're lucky. I mean, between dying of a septic wound and being hit by a cannonball and being immediately knocked out of your body, you know, you may not, you know, you may not... In, so they may not even realize that they're dead. So that, that's where the ghosts and stuff come into play. The ghosts haven't fully crossed over. But Tro is a spirit, and he's kind of one of the guys... For whatever reason, I picked him up. We just hit it off, and he's followed me around ever since. He loves, he loves technology. He kind of is fascinated with some of the stuff that we have now. Um, but he's a 100% pure ladies Frenchman. 
<laughs> and uh, he has been very helpful on a number of occasions um, during investigations, during... Um, now, he told you something about your grandfather, right? No, that was that was, oh. um, that was Donovan. Who oh, actually, oh okay. okay. Donovan's actually the other guy that is watching over me because he was my grandfather at death. Okay. Um, Donovan, and I looked this up, his name was James Donovan, and he was killed in action on Omaha Beach. Mm. Mustard out of New York. Um, Donovan, I asked him, I said, why are you following me around? He said, I owe your grandfather a favor. I said, what favor do you owe my grandfather? My grandfather passed away in 1960, six years before I was born. I said, what do you possibly owe my grandfather? He said, well, he got me out of trouble more than once, and he got me out of town when I needed to get out of town. Mm. I'm like, really? <laughs> He's like, yeah, he drove me to New York and made sure I got to the got to the selective service depot and, and got signed up and got out of town before it got bad. I'm like, really? So I looked it up, and there's only one James Donovan that mustered out of this place in New York and was killed in combat on Omaha Beach. So it was him. That's the guy. That's the guy. And I asked him what the favor was, and he said, well, or I said, why were you going out of town? He said, well, I got a girl knocked up. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. And this is, keep in mind, this is back in the 40s. You didn't do those kind of things. You know, that's not, it was not societally accepted. And I'm like, well, why didn't you just marry her? He's like, David, he said, you don't understand. He said, I'm not the kind of guy that they wanted married into this family. Ah. My grandfather, <clears throat> in various ways, not fully, but on the perimeter, was kind of involved with the Irish mob. And, and Donovan was fully involved with the Irish mob. And in the 40s, you being involved in the Irish mob, being Catholic, getting a good Protestant girl pregnant was not a good thing. Mm. And so, and he knew that he basically would be in jail for the rest of his life if he didn't do something. Mm. And so, and there wasn't anybody that was going to get him out. So he went to my grandpa, and my grandpa bailed him out and put him on the right track. And, you know, unfortunately, he was killed in combat, but everybody has their own destiny. Mm. You know, I've always told Faye, I said, I don't know if I'll make it past the age of 60. I may get up tomorrow and get hit going to work. I don't know. You know, but she, uh, but he uh, kind of explained that way. I said, well, is it anybody I know? I'm like, and he's like, yeah, you know her. Uh, she was friends with your mother. I'm like, I ain't going to ask anymore. <laughs> I'm not going to ask anymore because I don't need that kind of hassle. Right. I, I kind of got an idea who it is, but I'm not going to get into that. Uh -huh. But that but that was Donovan. Um, okay. Batro is... He and Donovan's kind of a constant. Batro kind of comes and goes. Batro okay. comes when he wants to show up, and, and he goes on investigations, and he goes out. And, he, and when he does, when he does come to me with, um, he has come to me before a couple times with spirits that refused to believe they were dead, mm. um, and I had to help convince them. Weirdly enough, it's kind of like playing telegraph when you're a kid. You know, you yeah. kind of amp things up. You know, he can connect with me. I can connect with him. And I, and I, in turn, can talk to her. Okay. And can talk to the other spirit. It's a weird thing. People think I'm nuts. And they're going to think I'm nuts. Um, but, so that's why a lot of times my patrol will show up out in the middle of nowhere um, and talk to me. I've had I've had murder victims show up while I'm in the shower, which is always enough to catch you off guard. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that was, that was not a pleasant experience. Oof. That was... That was very hard because Kelly and I both were getting 
the same group of women that had been murdered. Oh, yeah. Kelly told me about them visiting her. I didn't realize they'd visited they were, you as they well. They were visiting me as well. They were telling her certain things. These women were murdered back in... When? Mid-60s, wasn't it? Early to mid-60s. And they were very high society Chicago women. Oh, were they? Yes. Oh. Their husbands were very much movers and shakers in the industry, business world. Oh. One was a banker. One was a uh, industrial executive. Another one was also was stock market whatever. But they were very high up okay. in the social order. We're talking, of course, about the Starved Rock murders. Right, Starved Rock murders. And women of that, and they were all in, the youngest one was like 40-something. Oh. They were all... They were, two of them were in their 50s, one was in their 40s. In, the, in high society at that time, that level, that class level, there are certain things you don't talk about with men. Mm. And there were certain things you don't talk with with women. So they would go to Kelly and they would talk to her about one aspect of the murder. And they would come to me and give me another aspect mm. of the murder. So sitting there comparing notes between Kelly and I, I mean, it was absolutely 100% clear that the guy that they convicted of the crime did it. Okay. No doubt in my mind. And I know where there is a diamond ring somewhere out there in that valley. And I know somewhere where that... I got a good idea where that knife was buried. They never, they didn't, they never found the knife. I got a good idea where it's buried. Oh, wow. But the state's not going to let me go out there with a metal detector and find it. So, and I'm not going to go out there and be digging around and have some park ranger show up and say, uh, what are you doing digging around out here? No. Not a good idea. Um, so... Kelly and I were getting both sides of the stories, but they showed up taking a shower one night. Not even thinking about it. The people that had called us to go do a reading of the canyon, I'd talked to them earlier, and uh, not even thinking anything about it. And after the people had called us to hire us, or just to ask us to go do a reading, they showed up while I was taking a shower, and I got three middle-aged women standing there. <laughs> <laughs> in their in their very proper attire, as I'm in the shower, <laughs> and they're telling me about this rape and murder. I'm like, can you wait until I'm out of the shower? <laughs> so for so for the week leading up to this, they would show up unannounced. They showed up one day when I was driving my piece of power equipment. I about <laughs> fell off my power equipment because they just kind of appeared in front of me as I'm driving down an aisle. Yeah, I'm like, oh, gee. So, yeah. It's, it's a weird thing. Oh, man. You know, and, and as time has progressed, I've learned to turn up and turn down my my focus, I guess you could say, my amperage. Okay. So that unless I actually really want to get involved, I don't see as much as I used to. Okay. Um, if I'm going on an investigation, I'll open it up. Um, I, I kind of operate at a normal, normal level where it's like I can sense something, and if I need to, I can open up more and pick up more on it. Um, when the ladies hit me and when some of these other spirits had come and hit me was when I was just wide open and learning about it, and I didn't know how to turn it down. Okay. So I would pick up on everything. Gotcha. And anything that ha happened by. And now it's to the point where I've learned how to control it a lot more. Okay. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, All right. Did Kelly ever tell you about the uh, young cross-dresser that we found here in the building? No. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah, this is very weird. We're talking Now we're talking about the, the antique New shop? New to you, yeah, the antique okay. shop. New to you, whatever it was called here yeah. in Ottawa. Um, 
we had done an investigation, which you were involved with as well. <laughs> Absolutely huge building, the biggest building we've ever I've ever done. Um, many levels, and just when you thought you were hitting the end of this building, you'd find more to it. Um, and we ended up covering a huge amount of this building. Well, we ended up disturbing one of the one of the spirits, and it was a little girl, and she would been in the upper level where the clothing and stuff was. Right. And she'd been, that was where she had played. Her parents had owned the building. Okay. And she liked playing up there because it was really like a shoe shop or something. It was like a department store or something. And that's where, where her mom and dad were alive and they worked there. They would take her to work with her and she would play up there. So I remember we, encountering the little girl on the second right. floor. And that's that's where we, that's, the, I got more details on it from there. Well, it upset her because she thought we were going to try and make her leave. Oh. And come to find out, the people that owned the building called Kelly and said, hey, Ever since you guys have been here, everything has gone wrong. You have to come in here and see what the hell is going on. And they'd blown a motor out of their vehicle, and they'd had water, plumbing bursts and water damage. And they had a wheel fall off of another vehicle, and they had the cash register malfunctioned, and they lost a whole bunch of receipts. Just one thing after another after another since we had been there. And so Kelly and I went. And we found out what was going on. And we picked up and we talked to the little girl. Said, "No, we're not trying to make you leave. We're just trying to get you know recordings and this and that." And, and so she was cool with it. We found her and we talked to her, and, and she was cool with it. Was well, we're walking out, the uh, the the building had an electric eye at the top of the stairs, so that when somebody went up there and broke the eye, a bell would go off. So Kelly and I were up there and walking around, and the bell had gone off for me, had gone off for Kelly, and so we were walking around. And uh, we were the only ones up there. So as we're walking around and going down, I happened to glance around behind me, and here's a young man, blue eyes, dark curly hair, kind of drifting among the clothes. I'm like, okay, didn't think anything of it. You know, how you doing? You know, didn't answer. And just kind of occasionally would look at him and, and say something to him. Never got an answer from the kid. And... Uh, <laughs> As we're leaving, Kelly and I turn around, we walk back down the stairs, and I see him looking over the rail at us, um, watching us go down, and he's holding up a pink and black striped bustier and corset. Bustier, I guess it would be. I'm like, you got to pay for that downstairs. I said, the cash register's down there. Didn't say anything, so we kept on walking. We got down to the landing and turned around, and he's like the third step down, and now he's wearing it. I'm like, didn't say anything. I said, okay, you still have to pay for that downstairs. The cash register's down there. Still didn't get anything from him. And then as I'm turning around and started walking down, I got this picture of a friend of mine wearing the same damn corset. <laughs> and I'm like, that's weird. Girlfriend, female friend. Okay. I'm like, okay, that's weird. And I just kept on walking. We got down to the bottom of the steps. And it occurred to me that the bell hadn't gone off at all since Kelly and I had been up there. It hadn't gone off anybody coming up. It hadn't gone off when he was coming down the stairs. And I turned to Kelly and I looked at her and I said, did you see that kid? She's like, what, the one in the, the one in the corset? I'm like, yeah, the one in the corset. She's like, yeah, I saw him. She said, I thought he was just some high school kid experimenting playing dress up. I'm like, did he come down the stairs? She's like, no, he wasn't real, was he? I'm like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and then, so I was like, okay, that's weird. I don't understand. <laughs> and then a few weeks later, my friend, who is a model, 
puts up these pictures on Facebook wearing that corset. Pink and black stripe. She wore for for a burlesque show and models in photo session. I'm like, okay, that's just too weird. Yeah. So that's bizarre. That's bizarre. Weird things happen when you deal with spirits. I don't know how other ways to explain it. Oh, so, fun. Yeah. So yeah, but that's a few. You know, some are cool. Some are different. Some are difficult. I've dealt with a a, a couple recently that was very difficult to deal with. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Capos, for those who don't know what a capo is, a capo was a Jewish prisoner in the death camps that was assigned by the SS to basically be their eyes and ears in the camp. And I picked up on this guy. He was attached to his unit, his capo uniform. I was at a gun show. And they had a, a capo uniform hanging on the wall. And they were asking an exorbitant price for it. But... You know, beings that there was, you can't find them if they're authentic for good reason. They, uh, they're worth that price if you want to collect something like that. I personally would not. It's like collecting Nazi memorabilia. I don't want that either. But this gentleman was attached to his, his uniform. It was just heartbroken because he'd actually had to put members of his family in the ovens and had, had lost, he had lost his entire family. One, I think one person had lived to see the end of the war out of a family of like 30, you know, and some of them he had put into the ovens himself. And he was just heartbroken because he had died a hated, hated, loathed person. But he had done what he had had to do because he had no choice. And he ended up, he ended up dying of starvation himself. But he was just attached to his uniform. He was just heartbroken that he couldn't be with his family because of the sins that were on his soul he said he couldn't be with his family and he had lived with that guilt and that pain and that anguish for so many years and he followed me for about a week and he, he gave me all these names of all these people that he wanted me to contact and apologize to and I wrote them all down but I'm like because some of them actually lived up in the Quad Cities area and went to the synagogue um, the synagogue in Rock Island and I at one time knew the rabbi at the synagogue and he wanted me to get in contact and, and you know, tell these people that he apologized for what he had done I'm like, and I almost did it and I'm like they're going to think I'm nuts even if the rabbi believes me they're going to think I'm nuts and so I eventually talked to him enough and, and helped him to find the peace he needed and actually helped him to cross over as well and he came back a couple of days later just a changed person, changed soul, and wearing his business suit. Apparently, he, the reason the Nazis had picked him is because he was a very prominent member of society where he lived, and uh, so they made him their their rat. And, uh, but he showed up in his business finds and just... A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I only changed soul. So that was... That was good, but just the pain and the anguish that he had suffered almost 70 years, you know, it was just crushing, you know, just crushing, so crushing. And the relief that he had gone through and crossing over and getting and fully being with his family again and the forgiveness that he got was was pretty good. It was pretty impressive And, and just changed him, changed his entire afterlife, I guess you could say, you know, so that was, that was very much very rewarding in that respect if you enjoyed my conversation with david why not check out his fiction his work including the fantasy novel blackjack can be found at darkcontinents.com david's also the author of a wonderful book of true ghost stories southern fried ghosts and their midwest cousins which can also be found at dark continents check it out enjoy And I'll see you next time we go Lights Out. Thank you, Sylvia. And thank you, David Youngquist. Thank you for sharing that experience, those experiences. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. You know, I know David from years gone by for an author's gathering he set up in a little town in downstate Illinois, Bishop Hill. And I had no idea. I knew he wrote a few books on the subject of ghosts and ghost hunting, but never knew he was that sensitive. Excellent. Thank you, David. And once again, thank you, Sylvia, for sharing part of your wedding anniversary with us. Fiction. Tonight's tale is by Peter Crowther. And that says a lot. Pete Crowther has won more awards for writing and editing than should be legal— In 1998, he cemented his long-term place in the field of horror, fantasy, and science fiction with the introduction of what is now one of the most highly respected publishers in the genres. That, of course, is P.S. Publishing. In 1999, P.S. Publishing began with just four novellas from Graham Joyce, James Lovegrove, Kim Newman, and Michael Marshall Smith. That imprint now publishes between 30 and 40 titles per year, working with the likes of Ramsey Campbell and Ray Bradbury, who contributed nine titles apiece to the inventory, 
and Stephen King, two titles, Stephen Erickson, seven titles, and Joe Hill, whose first book, 20th Century Ghosts, was a surprise big seller of 2005. P.S. Publishing went on to receive the British Fantasy Society's annual award for Best Specialty Press seven years running, at which point Pete withdrew the imprint from further consideration, and that award has now become the P.S. Publishing Award for Excellence in a Specialty Press, which now, courtesy of Pete, arrives with an additional award of £250. At this point, I'll let you go dig for more information on Peter Crowther at your leisure, and we'll now turn you over to him for the next 39 minutes and 30 seconds. I've waited for a special occasion to cast this story forth. This is that occasion. The end, the beginning, losses, changes, gains, chances. Here is Peter Crowther's Songs of Leaving. And I saw the dead, great and small alike. Revelation 21. The final ships go up reaching for the stars in the closing days of what is to be the last winter of the world. They ride interlocking plumes of power and steam like anxious fingers of smoky fire, colored sunset orange in cornfield yellow in the still afternoon. And each of them belches out a tumultuous roar, a hymn of steam and gasoline, a cadence of harmony and discordance, a syncopated symphony of regret and anticipation a song of leaving. They have already left from Islamabad and Jerusalem, these ships, or ships like them, like them in intent if not in appearance, and from the arid wastes outside of Beijing and the heat-shimmering flats of Florida, from the snow-covered plains surrounding Moscow and the scorched tundra of Kenya, from a thousand, thousand places, the ships have lifted into the sky in these tired days, with the distant horizon darkened not only by their sheer number but also by the approaching asteroid. The towering silver points of the final ships rise to hit the clouds and then puncture them, pulling them down and around their midriffs, bellies bulging with the almost last people of Earth. Their pinpoint faces turn to the grimy windows, acceleration pulling at muscle, sinew, and flesh as they watch the cities and the meadows fall behind and the endless gray ribbons of highway and the veiny drifts of water drop down and down until they are at first partially obscured by the clouds and then completely obliterated by swirling whiteness. On the ground, silent faces, some alone, some huddled in groups, also watch as the last ships dwindle in the azure blue, growing smaller until they are no longer ships, but merely glittering shadows and then distant needles, and then, at last merely the tiniest specks on an otherwise clear sky. And then they are gone. Ahead of the ships lie the domed cities of the moon and Mars. Beyond those, a series of space-borne stations littering the heavens, some finished and some still under preparation. A colossal paper chase of metal and plastic, stepping stones of rivet and cable, 
leading humanity's survivors across the airless void and on towards untold adventures and undreamed of destinies. The ships will touch down, and their passengers and crews will consolidate and plan their next steps, always looking with one eye to the darkness before them and the other to the ghost of the doomed planet they have left behind. Only some of them will survive the journey, but that's something they do not think about. Back on the Earth, the silence rushes in to remove the memory of the ship's engines, runs along the worn-down pathways of a million forests and the dusty streets of a million towns, replacing their throaty roar with the sound of the wind through the trees and the creak of swinging store signs. The asteroid was first noticed by amateur astronomer Julio Shenanen through the $199.95 telescope bought as a 30th birthday present by his brother Manuel from the Keep Watching the Sky store on Bleecker Street and erected in Julio's backyard in the Brooklyn suburb of Park Slope. Julio, who was a native of New Orleans, had moved north when his wife Carmen had gotten herself a job as a childminder to a wealthy couple in a penthouse apartment overlooking Central Park. Initially referred to as Shenanan's Folly by a skeptical sky-gazing fraternity, the object reported as a shadow over Alpha Centauri turned out to be a whole lot more substantial and a whole lot nearer when it could be viewed by something costing a little more than a week's grocery bill. It turned out to be a whole lot more menacing, too. At the request of its discoverer, the object was renamed Fat Tuesday, ostensibly because that was the day on which it was first spotted, and because at roughly the size of the entire eastern seaboard, it was big. But the underlying reason was an acknowledgement of Julio's hometown, inasmuch as Fat Tuesday was a literal translation of Mardi Gras, the name now regarded as the entire celebration, but originally intended as referring only to the final day, a day of feasting. It was also, and perhaps more significantly, a recognition on Shenanan's part, even in those early days of the object's arrival in our planetary skies, that the carnival's days were numbered the carnival being Earth and all who lived upon it, a kind of lucky cosmic coming together of events for would-be wordsmiths with nothing better to do with their long New York evenings than stargaze. But there was nothing lucky about the appearance of Fat Tuesday, particularly where Julio Shannon was concerned. By that time, the writing was on the wall for the world, and there was some in the world who held Shannon responsible. Sad and bitter folks who had spent a lifetime blaming others for anything that happened to them. And so, it was that, on the evening of the anniversary of his discovery, the computer programming Skywatcher was shot and killed outside his home, with Carmen looking on from the bedroom window. When Julio's screaming wife ran out to help him, she got a bullet in her back for her trouble. In a letter of pasted newspaper copy sent to the New York Times, the assassin said that he, or she, nobody ever found out, was committed to ridding the world of this blight on humanity, Shenanan, and in so doing, removed the threat of Fat Tuesday. Though quite how those two items could be connected was well beyond all but those who sent $50 bills to P.O. box addresses posted up on TV screens at the end of an afternoon session of down-home, back-to-basics sermonizing on cable. The assassin was never caught at least not by the authorities, and the threat to others in the scientific community remained, despite the fact that the media and pretty much everyone she spoke to or heard from condemned the action with vigor. 
and now wheelchair-bound Carmen Shenanan left the excesses of New York State and returned to the Big Easy, where she disappeared into an anonymity worthy of the FBI Informant Protection Program, and one that even Julio's brother, Manuel, could not pierce. Meanwhile, Fat Tuesday blunders on. According to one pundit, the asteroid is on course to kiss the Earth in the early afternoon of February 8, 2007, just 17 months after its first sighting. The particularly bad news is that this is going to be no platonic peck on the cheek. NASA's resident expert in heavenly affairs, Professor Jerry Mizzelier, goes on to tell Oprah Winfrey in a show interview whose transmission is debated for a full week before eventual release to awaiting an increasingly despondent world. It'll be the full enchilada, Mizzelier continues, a big smackaroo on the lips and the tongue right down the throat. And then... Oprah asks in an uncharistically trembling voice. Mizzelier's shrugged response said it all. The kiss is just a foreplay. After that, mankind gets fucked. Big time. When you put your mind to it, you can do a lot in nine months. Throughout 2006, and into the January of Earth's final year, all potential solutions were considered, while at the same time work continued feverishly on the construction of spaceships that would if all else failed, carry the seed of humanity and as many of its fellow planetary inhabitants as could be realistically mustered in so short a time to the stars. The alternatives were running out fast. Nuclear missiles failed to have any effect. It's kind of like trying to blow up an elephant with a forty-five. Jerry Mizzelier explained colorfully to Dan Rather. You may get lucky and dislodge a nickel-sized chunk of meat, but that's about all. That was Mizzelier's last TV appearance. Two days later, he told the Washington Post he was going down to the Keys to make his peace with God and maybe do a little fishing on the side. Four attempts at landing a hand-picked crew of demolition experts, a la the Armageddon and Deep Impact movies of the late 1990s, got no nearer to Fat Tuesday than a few hundred miles. It seemed that either real-life Bruce Willis's or Robert Duvall's were somewhat thinner on the ground than their celluloid counterparts or movie makers and screenwriters had simply got it wrong, hard as that was for many to accept. Perhaps not quite so colorful as Jerry Mizzelier, but no less succinct was the nonagenarian British astronomer Patrick Moore's verdict on BBC Television's Newsnight. One should liken it to a game of snooker, the monocled scientist explained to Jerry Paxman with a characteristic pinwheeling flourish of his arms. With Earth sitting defenseless in the middle of the table, right in the path of the white ball. On the other side of the Atlantic, a couple of days later, Colorado physicist W. Martin Parmenter picked up the anthology on a special edition of the Jerry Springer Show when, along with other luminaries of the scientific establishment, he was invited to hypothesize the outcome of the big kiss. I don't know diddly about Snooker, Parmenter said laconically. But if we switch to the game I play, when we're the eight ball on the table in a pool hall in Denver, and we're about to get hit full on with enough force to drop us, or what's left of us, in the corner pocket on a table in a cellar bar room in Mexico City. The disappearance of Springer from the airways following the show was openly considered by many to be the single silver lining in the approaching dark cloud that was Fat Tuesday. That, and the appearance of an advertising board carried by a barefoot man down the full length of Broadway, his handiwork proclaiming in hand-scrawled letters that were a mix of caps and lowercase. It's official. Fat Tuesday is a load of balls.
By the time of Earth's last fall, with the browning leaves bidding a fond and final farewell, all continuing attempts to avert the inevitable catastrophe were cosmetic at best. The real energy was now being channeled worldwide into the construction of spaceships, huge gleaming monoliths that grew quickly on hastily prepared launch pads around the globe. That not all of these vehicles would survive the trip was accepted, as was the inescapable fact that, statistically speaking, particularly considering the haste and the resulting corner-cutting of their translation from blueprint to steel and wire and circuit board, many of the ships would not even make it off the ground. But it was a risk that an escape-mad humanity received its quota of lottery tickets. Life's a lottery ran the impassioned ad campaign. So make sure of your tickets today was more than prepared to take. When the last ship to successfully depart the green hills of Earth lifts to relative safety above the planet's atmosphere on February 4, 2007, a Tuesday, appropriately enough, the tally of successes against failures for anyone remaining on Earth who might be interested is an impressive 3.718 to 1. And then they are gone. Small ships, sleek, pointy-nosed, silver-shaped missiles bearing ten or twelve strong crews snuggled amongst carefully secured boxes of artifacts and flags and religious ornamentation, and huge-bellied blunderbusses carrying cryogenically frozen embryos of the Earth's animal and insect populations, and thin trays of seeds containing all manners of flora and fauna, all have disappeared over the months and weeks and days, up into the sky and far away. Now all that is left are the unlucky ones, the ones who lottery tickets haven't paid off. There are billions of them in mountains and valleys and towns and cities, all the distant, off-the-beaten-track communities from China to Scotland, from the wine-growing regions of France to the sidewalk cafes of Vienna, all of them paradoxically breathing a sigh of relief as the last gleaming means of escape passes behind the clouds in much the same way as the terminally ill patient relaxes when all the fit and well visitors depart the hospital and leave the slowly dying to get on with the job in peace and quiet. Misery loves company, is the way it's often described. But the truth of the matter is that, in these final hours, there is little sign of misery. Movies and literatures which in the last half of the previous century foretold of anarchy and chaos in the face of humanity's end couldn't have got it more wrong. With the last spaceship now a memory of chances missed and debts now to be paid, a strange calm falls across the cities and towns and villages of Earth. What little looting there has been has been dealt with swiftly and without mercy. A do-it-yourself system of law and order has grown throughout the winter months, bringing with it an acceptable face of vigilantism in which people are openly but unemotionally intolerant of any among their number who fail to live up to the dignity now expected of the last remnants of the species. Because, after all, what use is a new video recorder or precious jewelry? And anyway, more storekeepers simply leave their stores open and go home. So stuff is there for the taking, but most people leave it be. Gleaming Chevys and Cadillacs sitting in unmanned showrooms, the very latest fashions from Gucci and Versace adorning silent mannequins in the windows of stores whose doors lie carelessly and casually ajar, and rare first issues in mint condition, no less, of silver and golden age DC comic books 
They're costumed and possibly superheroes staring off the covers, regretting that there's nothing even Krypton's first son can do to avert the disaster spiraling closer with every passing minute. Everywhere is quiet. People stay home, make love gently, and talk feverishly, trying to pack all the thoughts and hopes and love they thought they had left in their few hours that remain. Sons and daughters return home like it's Thanksgiving or Christmas. In between their conversations, minds idly drift to thoughts of what it will be like when the end finally comes, wondering what it will be like sitting in a 15-story apartment building and seeing a wave of water thundering towards the window blotting out the blood-red sky, wondering what it will feel like to have your Midwest home blown up from around you while you crouch with your family behind the sofa, or if you have one in the cellar listening to the sound of earth breaking up. Consequently, most folks don't leave potential talk or lovemaking time empty. The last ship has gone. Fat Tuesday's kiss is now accurately scheduled for 2.17 p.m. on Saturday. On Wednesday, the earth gives up its dead. Hey, the boy turns round and looks at the man standing out on the street by the white picket fence gate. Hey yourself, he says, shielding his eyes against the sun's glare. It's almost midday and the California heat is stifling, but even so, the street is busy with people. The boy's name is William Freeman. His friends call him Billy, his parents Will. He is twelve years old and suddenly acutely aware that, as far as he had been concerned, the street had been pretty much deserted the last time he looked, and that was only a few minutes earlier. You must be Will, the man says, beaming a big smile and resting a liver-spotted hand on the gatepost as he looks William up and down. William nods. The man must be a friend of his mom and dad, someone who's maybe been out of town for a while and has come back to more familiar surroundings for when the asteroid hits. Right now, though, William is more concerned with a tall, thin man standing across the street with his back to them. This new man's hands are resting on his hips and he's shaking his head staring up at Mr. and Mrs. Manders' place, seeming to take a lot of interest in the new glass conservatory Mr. Manders tacked on a couple of summers back. Don't you want to know who I am? The old man at William's gate asks in a voice bearing more than a hint of amusement. When William turns back to the man, he can see the distant shape of Fat Tuesday over to the east, hanging on the horizon like a party lantern. Who are you? he asks, wondering if it was his imagination, or does the man suddenly seem a mite familiar? The screen door squeaks open behind him, winds shut, and clatters twice. William turns and sees his mother walking across the lawn, picking her steps real careful, like she was walking on thin ice. Her left hand is up to her mouth, her right holding a hank of her hair at the side of her head. She's staring with a mixture of frown and wide-eyed amazement, not at William, but over his shoulder. William looks back at the old man. Hello, pooch, the man says. Daddy? George Chinnery was the first to make contact. It had to be somebody, and as luck would have it, it was George. George slipped away to new adventures in the spring of 1998, leaving behind him a breathless cardiac arrest team, a callous flat green line on a bedside monitor, and a weeping daughter. William had been almost four years old, but still young enough to forget quickly, forget and accept, or maybe the two were the same thing. But while George was the first, over in the quiet suburb of Hawthorne, 
an area in the sprawling Californian conurbation that was famous for producing one of the last century's most enduring musical acts. The others quickly followed. Hillary and Sam Arnold sit on the bed in their son's room. Around them are strewn the collected ephemera that is all that remains of little Joseph Arnold. Comic books, a Millennium Falcon toy spaceship that looks nothing like the huge ships that have so recently left Hillary and Sam and the rest of the Earth far behind them, and a few favorite pieces of clothing that Hillary just hasn't had the heart to throw out when the tumor took their little boy away. There are no tears. The tears dried up years ago. Now there is only a grim and quiet resignation that sometimes fades right into the background, only to return when they least expect it, usually in the mornings when, on waking, the imminence of Fat Tuesday, or even its very existence, seems for just a fraction of a second to be the remnants of a very bad dream. Only it isn't a dream at all. You want me to get some pills or something? Sam Arnold asks his wife in a voice that is just above a whisper. He runs his hand down her back. She shakes her head and folds the sleeves of little Joseph's sweater, laying the garment gently on her son's pillow. Jack Mason says old man Phillips, you know, down on Times Square. He's giving away to any that wants him. Wouldn't take me. I couldn't bring myself to do that, Hillary tells her husband, turning to look at his face, seeing the darkness beneath his eyes. She recognizes that darkness. It isn't fear. It's the helplessness he feels at being unable to do anything for those he cares about. Since the death of Joseph and their decision not to try to replace him, that those is just her. He runs his hand up to her neck and gently kneads the skin between her hairline and the collar of her house dress. It wouldn't hurt, he says. Jack says old man Phillips said. How do they know? Hillary says in a tired voice, and anyway, it's not the hurt I'm bothered about. Then what is it? She shrugs and looks up at the window, imagining the cold skeletal trees of Central Park just a couple blocks away. No idea. She moves closer to him on the bed and wraps her arms around him, smelling his musk of fading cologne and skin mingled with cigarette smoke. I had the dream again last night, she whispers. Little Joe? Hillary nods. He said he was coming for us. Sam pushes her back gently, holding her at arm's length. Is that why you don't want me to get the pills? Hillary's eyes search her husband's face for some indication of an answer to his question. I don't know, she says at last. Maybe. Oh, honey, he says. I wish it could. The knock on the apartment door sounds like a rifle crack in the stillness of the New York afternoon, and yet, for all that, it is a small knock, a delicate knock, and outside the window there seems to be a, some kind of commotion and lots of shouting, like a parade, maybe. The news traveled fast, spreading like wildfire fueled by the wind of the approaching asteroid. Dead people were coming back to life, kind of. It sounded comic book crazy, but it was true. Telephones the world over buzzed and hummed with the news. Sons and fathers, daughters and mothers, uncles and aunts and sisters and brothers. They were all coming back, sauntering down paths and knocking on doors, drifting into backyards and on the porches, peering through once-familiar kitchen windows and smiling, never-forgotten smiles. 
At first, the people who heard the news thought it might be some byproduct of the asteroid, like something dreamed up by George Romero and Stephen King, a plague of flesh-eating cadavers shambling the highways and byways of the doomed world in a final devastating flourish of death and destruction. But then, their own doorbells and buzzers sounded, or their own windows rattled with a distantly familiar tapping, or mailboxes clattered open to allow long-ago special calls and long-ago special voices that had lived on only in dreams and wishful memories. Sure, it just had to be something to do with Fat Tuesday, but the animated corpses seemed to possess not only no malice, evil intentions, or appetite for human skin and cartilage, but also no idea of how they had gotten there. They came in droves, huge processions of men, women, and children, some young and some old, some no more than babies in arms carried by another of their number, and all of them marveling at the things they passed by, each of them making their way to a familiar place and to familiar faces. They came into towns and cities, along arterial blacktops empty of cars and trucks, and along the narrow roads that are the blue veins connecting communities, and a few came by other means. The Mississippi River is almost 2,500 miles long, drifting and winding from a stream you could step across in northern Minnesota and washing miles wide through the country's heartland and down into the Gulf of Mexico. If you counted the Missouri, which feeds into the Mississippi from the Rockies just north of St. Louis, and the Ohio, which gets in on the act around Cairo, Illinois, and the Red, the Arkansas, the Tensaw, and the Yazoo, you'd be talking about getting on for 4,000 miles of river system. Only the Nile and the Amazon are larger. The Mississippi and its tributaries drain almost one and a quarter million miles, including all or part of 31 states and some 13,000 square miles of Canada. Through Prairie Duchene in Wisconsin at drifts where French fur traders exchange goods and services with the Winnebago, down through Cave and Rock, Illinois, and into Vicksburg with its vast Civil War battlefield where, on a still night, you might just hear the cries of Southerners still withstanding General Grant's 47-day siege. And on down to Hannibal, boyhood home of Sam Clemens, who took the nom de plume of the riverboat captain's call for measuring the water's depths, Mark Twain. So many places along that drift of water, so many swirls and eddies, you could imagine many things getting out into that watery flow to sail along. So, maybe you could imagine this, a huge, gaudily painted floating palace pulled from the secret depths of the river somewhere where nobody has ever been, a pair of enormous paddle wheels rucking up the frothy water, its saloons decked out in gilt and scarlet and velvet, bright white paneling and the sound of banjo picking, sailing slowly, drifting between the West Bank and Algiers, drifting under the Huey P. Long Bridge upriver near Harahan, and then settling just a stone's throw from the moonwalk promenade of the French Quarter where, on an evening in the dog days of the world, a saxophone's lilting refrain merged into the sound of accordions, and the smell of tobacco and the whoops and cries of people making the most of their unearned death sentence. And as the riverboat nears the side, it sounds its horn, a mournful but somehow strangely exultant wail that breaks through the sounds of sometimes reluctant and sometimes forced revelry, causing it to stop, not all at once, but itself like a wave, 
a wave of silence washing through the port of New Orleans, where Mardi Gras is in full swing, a true farewell to the flesh. And there they are, hanging from the sides of the riverboat in all manner of clothing, old and young alike, hanging onto railings and wainscoting, leaning against funnel and gate, waving for all their worth to folks in the crowds that soon gather around the moorings. At the front of the throng of hand-holding, beer-drinking revelers sits a woman in a wheelchair, frowning in a mixture of disbelief and an excitement she thought she would never feel again. For now, in this magical short final era of the history of earthbound humanity, a new ability holds sway, an ability known only to children, the mythical race that knows the power of the darkness and the light alike, that knows the real power of acceptance without reason. The dead are here! The cry moves through the crowds like the wind itself, touching every one of them as they recognize faces on the riverboat, return smiles and waves, anxiously waiting for the boat to dock so that they may all be reunited. Then, there's another one, someone calls, and there, up the river, is another boat, just like the first one, paddle wheels thrashing the surf of the old Mississippi, churning it up like watery thunder, and behind that one, itself bedecked with hundreds or a thousand waving bodies, comes another, letting out its steamboat whistle cry. Only this one doesn't sound mournful at all. This one sounds like the biggest cheer that ever was, until the boat behind it, just coming around the bend now, pulls fully into view and lets rip. Now, that's the biggest cheer that ever was, at least for a minute or two, a deep-throated calliope wheeze that sets folks to holding their ears and laughing and crying all at the same time. They hear the clarion call out in the plantations surrounding New Orleans, plantations with names such as Rosedown and Destrahan, where the garçonnaires are already filling with old familiar faces. Work-clothed men in overalls wading through the cotton plants, or the rice, indigo, hemp, tobacco, sorghum, corn, peanuts, potatoes, and sugar, beaming grins big enough to crack the whole face wide open, were appearing from around majestic live oaks bedecked in Spanish moss, and from behind century-old camellias and azaleas, the watery sunshine dappling them like fireflies. As the ships reach the dock, one by one the people jump and drop and sometimes just walk right off. Their clothes are sometimes yesterday's fashions, and sometimes straight out of the turn of the century, a mix of zoot suits and linen jackets, lettered sweaters and gingham dresses, and all kinds of uniforms, army, navy, air force, and many of them stylistically different too, but all of them touch down on the riverside walkway beaming big smiles, their eyes scanning the crowds trying to pick out the faces they've come to see, and every time one of the waiters greets one of the visitors, be the newcomer old or young, their first word is often their name, followed by a query. Papa? Sandy, is it really you? Son, welcome home. We're real proud of you. And then come the questions. Lots of questions. But the answer is always the same. I don't know. I just don't know. In the massing, thrusting, pushing throng of people, some searching and some who have already found each other, a wheelchair threads its way to the water's edge where the big paddle boat sits, its deck boards creaking and its funnel hissing softly. The woman in the chair searches the faces and the bodies, ignoring the good-natured jostling as she watches the arms outstretch, thinking each time that the arms are for her, 
but then realizing that the clothes are wrong or the color of the skin is wrong or Carmen over here. She feels emotion well up in her stomach, feels a tingle down her legs that she hasn't felt for what seems like a lifetime. And she feels a telltale tickle of a tear on her cheek. Julio? Her eyes scan the knees and legs that surround her as she struggles to lift herself from the chair that has become her home and admits the mustaches and the sideburns, the long tail coats and the swirling crinoline. She sees him, and he sees her. It's Saturday morning, just another Saturday morning, to look at the folks strolling the streets of New Orleans. But if you sneaked and looked into the French Quarter, not that you'd need to sneak, you can hear the hullabaloo clear across town. You'd think that maybe the Saturday night parting has just started a little sooner than usual. Either that or the Friday night session is going on past its usual cutoff time. But then, it isn't just another Saturday morning. In fact, it isn't just any morning at all. It's the last day of the world. And the songs of leaving it all behind fill the air like the scent of summer jasmine, thick and wistful. The light is soft, like a late fall afternoon, with Fat Tuesday now sitting squarely between the sun and the ground, plummeting on to keep its scheduled appointment at 2.17 Eastern Standard Time, just a little over four hours from now. All of the farewells have been said, most of them many times during the past three days, but there's been a lot of greetings, too. Now the dead walk and sit alongside the living, chewing the fat, tapping a foot to the music that seems to wash around everything like the early morning mist that sometimes spills over from the river. Over on Bourbon Street, Fats Domino and Mac Rebeneck are duetting on a couple of Steinway Grands rolled out into the street from Jeff Dickerson's instrument store, while Alvin Shine Robinson powered up and down the fretboard on the Earl King favorite, Let the Good Times Roll, while Robert Parker sacks wails and whines. The crowd cheers at every bum note that spills out. They've been cheering since well before dawn, as long as the constantly changing band has been playing and drinking, so you can forgive the musicians a lot. Truth to tell, you can forgive anyone pretty much anything this morning. In the audience, watching Fats and the good doctor hammer the ivories are Professor Longhair and Lloyd Price, Huey Piano Smith and Joe Tex, Ernie K. Doe and Lee Dorsey. They'll all get a turn on the instruments, and many of them already have. And if and when folks fancy a little oration between the music, former Governor Huey Long is all set to bend their ears for one last time. Though right now, just like everyone else, he seems content to whoop and laugh and slap his leg, spurred on by Democratic Congressman John Bro, the pair of them having given up on trying to talk over the music. The truth is, it's impossible to figure out who's dead and who's alive. Some of these folks you recognize straight off and you wonder to yourself. Wonder as you grab another bottle of beer from a passing waiter. You wonder just which is which. Not that it matters. Sitting at one of the tables outside Café du Monde at the corner of Decatur and St. Anne, working their way through a plate of beignets and their third cup of Café à la, while listening to Alan Toussaint play a little boogie-woogie on an old stand-up wooden piano, are Anne Rice, William Faulkner, Ellen Gilchrist, and British publisher John Gerald, who, in all his years in the business, had never missed a convention in the Big Easy. 
Meanwhile, leaning against the front wall, chatting to the driver of a horse-drawn cab, Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg seemed to be sharing a joke with Truman Capote and John Kennedy Toole, with Kerouac holding up a copy of Toole's Pulitzer Prize-winning A Confederacy of Dunces and shaking his head. Toole just shrugs and allows a slow trickle of water into his glass of absinthe, watching with satisfaction as the liquid turns a bright yellow. On the riverfront round back of Café du Monde, hookers provide final, and occasionally first, sensuous experiences to men and boys on the steps and amidst the foliage, the sound of their anxious enjoyment permeating the already filled air. A shoeshine boy stops Julio Shenanan. A high five for the shine and just your thanks for the time, he says, holding his right hand in the air, fingers stretched out like twigs. Gotta have clean shoes to meet your maker. I'm fine, but thanks, Julio says. How about you, Missy? The man asks, a grin from ear to ear exposing bridgework gaps you could suck pickles through. Polish up them wheels so fine you could make the sun put on his glasses. Carmen laughs and claps her hands. No, really, she tells him, reaching out to touch his arm. We're both fine, thanks. The man shrugs and tells him to have a good day, and then he shakes his head and chuckles as he walks off. Alongside him, in the bushes next to a telescope overlooking the river, a tall, red-headed woman is sitting astride a young barefoot man. Carmen and Julio can see only the woman's back and the young man's feet poking out from beneath her long skirts, and just for a couple of seconds they watch the woman moving slowly up and down and they listen to her voice, soothing and encouraging. Carmen looks up at Julio and feels new strength from his smile. Wheel me over to the steps, she says, nodding to the gap in the railings overlooking the river. Then you can get me out of this damn chair so as I can sit on land again. Julio does as she asks. The two of them sitting on the steps, Carmen looks up at the black hole that is Fat Tuesday. You know, she says, closing one eye and squinting. If you look at it just right, you can almost believe you could reach out your hand and feel it. She reaches up with her left arm to demonstrate, feeling around with her hand. Without turning around to look at him, Carmen asks her husband, How close do you think it is? Close, comes the reply. For a few seconds, Carmen doesn't say anything. Then, You know, she says, I think I'd like to go swimming. There are already folks in the water, swimming slowly out in the middle of the river, but she thinks that maybe Julio will say she shouldn't do that. Instead, he stands up and takes off his shirt and pants, dropping them into a neat pile beside her. Then he takes off his shorts. Firecrackers light up the now dark sky, and a chorus of cheers and trumpets sound above the already cacophonous din. You want me to help you? he asks. Carmen's mouth is wide open in a mixture of shock and excitement, the kind of excitement that comes only when you think you're doing something naughty. Maybe with my pants and hose she says, giggling as she unbuttons her blouse. And then you can take me down to the water. Take you down to the water, Julio says. Heck, you can just fall in. And he gives her a push before diving in after her. Carmen hits the Mississippi in momentary panic, sinking immediately beneath the surface, staring up through the swirling water at the dark shape that looms overhead. Then she sees another shape, the thin brown outline of her husband cut into the water alongside her and she feels his arms wrap themselves around her and lift her gently to the surface. 
She emerges, sputtering, and shakes her head. You damn fool, she says. I could have drowned. For a second, neither of them does or says anything. They just float there, Julio paddling with his feet and keeping them straight with his left arm treading the water. Then they both burst into hysterics. I wonder, I wonder what time it is, Carmen says as she allows her husband to turn her over onto her back and swim, pulling her with him. There's a wind in the air now, a strong wind. More fireworks light up the sky, turning the darkness into a daylight of sorts. The glow of the fireworks momentarily illuminates the surface of Fat Tuesday, and she sees, suddenly, that it looks just like the ground out back of their house in Brooklyn. No more mysterious than that. Somewhere, over in the town, they can hear Dr. John playing Such a Night. Who cares, Julio says. We've got eternity, and we've got the river. Carmen nods and squeezes Julio's hand. Amen to that, she says. The great Mississippi, the majestic, the magnificent Mississippi, rolling its mile-wide tide along, shining in the sun. Mark Twain, Life on the Mississippi. Just like a ship out on the sea Baby, you look so good to me You know, honey, that I love you so So come on, sugar, let the good time roll I love this story, so thank you for it, Pete. It begins in one direction and gradually leads you elsewhere, somewhere, someplace you never thought you'd be when it began. Is it science fiction? Is it fantasy? Is it horror? Yes, yes, it's all that. So I hope you've enjoyed it, and we'll have another listen to it sometime soon. Aside from P.S. Publishing, Pete's work has been widely translated, and his short stories have been adapted for television on both sides of the Atlantic and collected in The Longest Single Note, Lonesome Roads, Songs of Leaving, Cold Comforts, The Spaces Between the Lines, The Land at the End of the Working Day, and Jewels in the Dust. With James Lovegrove, he is the co-author of Escardy Gap and The Hand That Feeds. He lives and works with his wife and business partner, Nikki, on the Yorkshire coast of England. Songs of Leaving was read for us tonight by Stephen Kilpatrick. Without checking too closely, I believe Stephen has been the busiest narrator we've had here in the Nook. In show 69, he read O.D. Haygray's It's Just Tearing Me All Apart. He read John Everson's Pumpkin Man in show 92. And he also narrated the two-part version of Algernon Blackwood's The Willows. That was shows 77 and 78. In show 72, he read Joe McKinney's Stoker-nominated Bury My Heart at Marvin Gardens. And on and on it goes. Stephen has a degree in culinary arts and is a customer service professional in a very hip and very tony business. He lives in Northern Virginia, is an avid fan of fiction, the outdoors, and board games. 
Recently, he began volunteering in prisons, and when not doing all of that, he enjoys hiking Virginia's Old Rag Mountain. You can touch base with Stephen at http colon slash slash www.stevenski.com. Thank you for tonight's reading, Stephen. And by the way, the musical bridge at the end of that reading was Earl King's Let the Good Times Roll from the album Earl's Pearls, the very best of Earl King. Since Treme has now come to an untimely end and DJ Davis is no longer with us, well, there it is. And there is Tales to Terrify, show number 104, 104 weeks, twice 52, and next week will be week one of year three. But now, children of the night, I would have you be upstanding. As mentioned, it is cold out there, so wrap tight. It has been single-digit cold all week here, so bundle well. Oh, yes, to put a bug in your ears, we are up for the This Is Horror Podcast of the Year Award. Last year, we came in second, runner-up. That's like the woman that gets to take Miss America's place if for some reason she has to drop out. Ah, well. I think we are worthy of the award this year. So, go to the This Is Horror site, click on Awards, and follow the instructions. They're simple, it's easy, and we would love to be a winner this year. And so, that will be that for the evening. There may be a few New Year's Eve revenants out there, so stay to the side streets on your way home. One thing, the world did not end in 2013. We had a few close passes, but we're still here. Aren't we? Well, at least we believe we are. Hold on to that thought. We are still here. We are still here. We are still here. And let that hope feed your pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.